Hi, my name's Dylan, and uh, I hate Yelp, but not for the reason you would think. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Food Brews. My name is Marcus. My name is David. And together we are Food Brews. Before we start with our first guest, David, could you explain a little bit of about food brews? So food brews came about because Marcus and I met at one of the food tech events that I host. And at that event, we were talking about what do we both like, and we realized we both like podcasts, and as well as food and brews or food and alcohol. And we thought, why not make an episode about food and alcohol so we can enjoy food yeah. and brews together? Food and brewery, a good combination. Especially since you're from Germany, it makes yeah, perfect sense. I love beer, especially from California, so it was not far away. Yeah, and it's fun because we get to interview all kinds of restaurant people and brewery people and uh, anyone we want. Brewer. Brewers. Yes, they can yeah, answer questions about how to brew. Or, or, not, or not answer I questions. I prefer brewery people. Yeah, brewery people. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Brewery brewers. Yeah. Oh, so, so the other thing is, uh, Marcus, is that food brews is about the idea of bringing people together and ideas, and we brew over different ideas. Yeah, thank you. So enough introduction. Uh, we warmly welcome Dylan. Hi, Dylan. Hello. Hi, Dylan. Thanks for coming. And back to your short introduction. You said you uh, have something to do with Yelp, or not? Well, I don't have anything to do with Yelp. It had a big part uh, to do with me in my experience working with food. So it's kind of always in the back of my mind a little bit. So you owned a restaurant, right? I did, yes. And maybe tell us a little bit about that. Well, I was a server, uh, oyster shucker. I've probably shucked over two million oysters. And two million? I, probably, wow. yeah. How many, how many can you do in one day? I don't know, 2,000. And that's while, you know, listening to a podcast. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just found myself in a situation where I was able to open a restaurant with a talented chef. So it wasn't really a dream. It was more like a circumstance I took advantage of and it was cool it was in the mission neighborhood of San Francisco so it's super competitive I mean some would say oversaturated with restaurants but we had a good four-year stretch and then we got out with a, our skin barely on our backs and then tell us tell everyone about the the name of the restaurant how you came up with that and then and then let's move into Yelp and how that fits in well the name of the restaurant was called Beast in the Hair which is now a sort of played out Uh, kind of theme for a name with an ampersand in the middle. but And I'm not going to say we were the first to do it. That's not true at all. But we're just more aware of trends coming. So we put an ampersand in our title. Um, and I, my, I gave my partner credit for coming up with the name. And he gives me credit. We can't remember because we were probably, you know, drinking beer or something. No food brews, eh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Brewing ideas over brew yeah. with my partner. Uh, and then I th I'm pretty sure he did it, though. I'm going to give him credit. And uh, we're actually going to call it Salt Block, but then, which I thought was cool because I pictured, you know, deer licking a salt lick, and it was hilarious, and I like salt. And, of course, you know, you got to have the expensive salt. That's not such a big part of a restaurant. Uh, but then we named our LLC Salt Block, naively not knowing that uh, you have to have a different name for a restaurant. So that ended up being the name of the LLC, and then we quickly had to come up with another name. Uh, I think I would have stuck with it and if I did it again. So, And what was um, the story with Yelp? Uh, so 
Yelp was such a problem because it's it's a necessary evil, like a lot of things in in the restaurant world. Necessary, uh, evil. necessary yeah. evil, just like you know, Open Table and all these other sort of platforms that, I mean, you have to pay them, so it's evil, but it's also necessary because that's how people find out about you, especially Yelp. Yeah. And they're extremely effective. Oh yeah, huge. I mean, I use Yelp almost every day. Don't tell my friends, um, but yeah, that's why it's a necessary <laughs> evil. Uh, so what would happen was when somebody wrote something bad or negative, often I would say three quarters of the time it was not deserved or it was misinformation or they even thought they're in a different place or whatever. Um, so my partner would turn red in the face and write emails back because uh, you can contact the person. And I just would sort of like shrink away from the computer and curl up in the fetal position and not know what I was doing with myself uh, or what kind of person I was to let Yelp have such an effect on me. So we had different reactions to it. So I eventually found um, my way of dealing with it, which was opening my own account and writing fictitious uh, yeah, Yelp reviews. Reaction on Yelp. Yeah. <laughs> yes. right. So I wrote one about a, a prison mess hall uh, as though we were a restaurant, basically just repeating all the cliches that drove me crazy. Like, I really wanted to like this place. Is this even organic? Is aioli made with raw eggs? You're kidding me. And so on and so forth. And I it literally was like a thousand words, this one, and it was really fun. And it, it felt cleansing in a way. And then I wrote another one about uh, the Berkeley parking enforcement because everybody was writing one stars. These jerks, you know, how dare they? I was just at the store for a second. <laughs> And I gave them five stars and said, I don't see what everyone's complaining about. They put the ticket right on the windshield. It was super easy to find. There's four different ways you can pay for this ticket. What is everyone complaining about? They even give you an envelope to put your check in. So that was kind of how I dealt with it. And it actually helped in some weird, twisted way. So what was one of your favorite stories at Beast in the Hair, your restaurant? Do you want a Yelp story or you want a... Uh, let's do a Yelp story. Yelp story. My favorite one by far was a woman wrote a scathing, I mean, she was horrified and absolutely disgusted with us because we were, and I quote, and it's not a joke. She was not kidding, like me with the parking ticket thing. She was angry with us for serving lion meat. And that was mean because lions are whatever. You know, obviously it's mean to eat a lion. I think most people would agree. Uh, so, you know, I brush it aside because at this point I had been in the, in the business for three years. So I knew, you know, don't read a Yelp and get obsessed with it. You won't sleep and it's really awful and this and that. But we really, I mean, I just couldn't, well, I did let it go. But one of my servers who, uh, Sarah, she was hilarious because she was so blown away by this. She had to find out like a, if it was real and I knew it was real cause you could, you kind of get a feel for that after a while. A, if it was real, B, why the hell did this woman think we were serving lion meat? How does that happen? Like, did it taste like lion? And so she did all this research online. I don't know what she did, but she, she figured out the answer. And the, what had happened was some prestigious chef from South Africa was in town, and he literally had some $1,000-a-plate underground dinner for, like, crazy, foodie, big-game-eating, illegal sort of uber foodie nerd geeky stuff oh, now you have everything oh, yeah yeah pretty much covered well, you know, it, and it, it sounds like a, the movie ace ventura pet detective definitely yeah, it had those together and it had those big, vibes yeah, yes exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> you cannot pass go <laughs> yeah. so, the, 
So, uh, so this guy actually, this chef, put on a, a meal where he legally served like lion meat that was either cu- killed humanely or something. So it wasn't. I mean, it's obviously objectionable, but it wasn't horrifying. Meaning, like he, I don't know, whatever. But I mean, it's still very weird and gross. But the point is that it was a legitimate, like, underground meal for you know a thousand dollars a plate. You know, some closed place in the basement. And somehow, this woman thought that's where she was. She thought she was at that mm-hmm. dinner. But it, we were a normal little restaurant in the Mission. Maybe it's because beast in the hair. Maybe it was that simple. Because yeah, people can be that way where a name can be very easily defining or something so yeah it could be like oh i read about this thing on some weird food blog and this is called beast in the hair lion is a beast perhaps i'm eating, i'm at that but how dare this guy serve lion and she it was legit she really thought we could still find the review i mean i would definitely not ever ask yelp to take it down that's for sure wow that, that's a that's a great story so you know uh, one thing i wanted to ask dylan was about the oyster shucking How do we know if an oyster is good or not? Uh, just like anything else. It's just like milk in the fridge. It's just like your leftover Chinese when you're too lazy to cook or get something new. Just smell it, really. And it's that simple. If it smells questionable, it's okay, but maybe you won't enjoy it, so don't eat it. But a bad oyster is pretty much the worst. It's like worse than the smell when you get your cast off in the seventh grade and you smell your hand. It's worse than that, so... Just use your best judgment. Uh, we evolved, you know, avoid as humans avoiding rotten foods. So just, you know, so it's you pretty that. easy. So, yeah, so you, yeah. Have you ever uh, found a pearl in your in an oyster? I have. I have. I've found three or four, and they actually. So these are farmed oysters that I always worked with, and uh, yeah, they occur naturally. And, yes, yeah, I found three or four, which means out of, I don't know, two million oysters I've probably shucked in my life. Uh, both these guys are looking at my huge forearm muscles right now as I say this. Uh, <laughs> uh, that means it's pretty low probability, but it does happen. And uh, what's funny is they're weird colors and shapes often. So only one I found actually looked like one from a necklace, but one of them was red and one was shaped like an oval. A red one. A red one, yeah. Maybe that's Ooh. for Yelp's logo. I think so. Yeah, I'm going to mail it to the founder of Yelp. Congratulations. Yeah. So you you told a little bit uh, about your restaurant and the mission. So um, can you explain a little bit more about this? Um, the restaurant it was full service. Uh, we wanted a something that you would describe as a gastro pub, even though I don't really like that word necessarily because to me it conjures up more of a pub than a restaurant. But we wanted to be more of a restaurant, but super laid-back service where the servers joke around uh, with customers and it's family style and they share. Um, but it's interesting because people, most people grew up eating in restaurants and have an idea like what they want from a restaurant. So, so quickly kind of the food and service sort of morphed into kind of what people wanted. So it wasn't exactly our vision from the beginning, but it ended up being coursed out um, meals, uh, super nice stemware, and and therein, you know, what, what the result of that was higher expectations with service, more stress for me, um, and so it ended up being a kind of I don't know fancy gastro pub. I'm not really sure how to define it. Full service, um, nice nice wineless, nice stemware, you know, removing dirty plates between courses, 
that kind of thing. Uh, reservations was a big one we didn't want to do um, because we didn't want to be a reservation type place. We wanted to be a neighborhood restaurant. We ended up mm-hmm. taking reservations and basically going through all the things that most restaurants go through that we thought we could avoid because we thought we were like so cool. Mm-hmm. When you know we're just you, you said fancy. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's the. It's hard. Yeah, kind of fancy meaning. By fancy, I mean high expectations mm-hmm. and having to charge more for for the the meals uh, than we would have liked to. I mean, the pipe dream was you know five thousand dollars of sales on a slow day with sixteen dollar entrees and people showing up and just eating at the bar, eating at a table, at the communal table, et cetera. Just hanging out with you. And hanging out. And that did happen, but not to the extent we wanted. We ended up having to do uh, reservations. We ended up making the portions bigger. You know, so it, it definitely it definitely morphed into more of a traditional full-service mm-hmm. uh, restaurant. But also than- the idea, I remember you telling me that that you had to switch the menu where you thought, oh, we could just change menu anytime we want. But no, you, people start coming in and asking for the same thing yes. over and over and over. Exactly. And you got to make the same thing over and over and over and over because that's what people want. Yes. Uh, that, that happened. That was a slow process, which now I could have like, I could have manipulated that and known that that's the case uh, and taken advantage of that. But at the time we fought it. And then eventually succumb to it. Uh, that's not the right word, succumb, but just realize that that was powerful. Uh, so we had signature dishes that we could never get rid of. And my partner, the chef, is super creative and risk-taking with food. And, you know, he didn't... I don't think he was thrilled to have to keep certain things on the menu. Uh, but it, it was super powerful. Um, so, yeah, that, that definitely was part of the process. Uh, we kind of fought it. Just because we're arrogant, you know, it's like now we're humbled after the fact. But at the time, you just but, assume. But I think I think everybody that opens a business to a degree. I don't know if arrogance right word, but everyone that opens a business, especially a restaurant, you have your vision, right? Yes. And yeah. and you want to stay true to your vision. But what you realize is to actually be able to pay the rent and stay open, you're going to have to veer off your vision a little bit. Yes. Exactly. And, and I think now, as I want to say I'm an adult now and I wasn't then, it kind of feels that way. <laughs> Aware of the realities of the world, uh, I would be quicker to acknowledge that than we were then. And how do, you think, how do you think Yelp helped you or didn't help you in that process? Well, Yelp helps because you people search for food through Yelp. Uh, you know, it's that simple. Um, somebody, so we're in the mission, which is a no, no. What about this though? How did Yelp help you through the process of becoming a better? Oh, owner? I see what you're saying. Yeah, so uh, I would say, f- okay, we would read re- the reviews, uh, which I stopped doing after a while. But for the first year, I read them and would just be furious at certain things. Uh, one, and now I'm, I'm always going to sidetrack with stories when I start talking about it because I get a little worked up. One was incredible, this woman. So there's this phenomenon in restaurants and anything that's like romantic, right? Like a restaurant's romantic, uh, a band playing a concert is romantic, uh, art galleries, romantic, right? So anything of that vein, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, creative field or something, there's this thing, name dropping, right? The epitome would be like actors and actresses. Oh, I met so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. My friend grew up with so-and-so, et cetera. So it happens in restaurants. So this woman name dropped me in a bad Yelp review mm-hmm. as her friend's friend or her friend's friend. I was like, wait a minute. So you're doing two things. You're writing a, a bitchy review 
and it wasn't deserved. You know, it was like, oh, the food took a while to come out. Like, yeah, it's Friday night at 8.30. There's 20 people waiting for tables. Yeah. Did you see the sous chef sweating? Like, and you're complaining that you waited 15 minutes for your steak. I want to say well done. I don't remember what she had. doesn't matter. She said, and, and I, my friend knew the owner, too. I said, you can't do both, all right? <laughs> you can't name drop the fact that, like, you know a restaurant person and, like, be mean to them. You're a twisted person. Um, but it did help because the 5%, see how I brought it back like that? I've I, gone I, through this I, process. I, I'm waiting, yeah. Right. There is 5% of it that's very good, uh, very effective feedback, which would be something super simple. Um, for example, something's too salty. If you see it twice, then you have a talk. Maybe such and such disc, dish is too salty. Um, and so that's useful feedback because it is... It can be objective and not vindictive and not based on their life experience or their day, how their day was, or if they waited for their table so they're extra tough on the food. So sometimes all that doesn't happen and there's, there's good feedback. And we, had, we did change the menu based on that for sure. One of, one of my favorites is uh, this one restaurant was getting all these good reviews all the time. Right, good review, good review, good review. But in the middle of the review, they'd say, "This place is amazing. The food's great. The service is great. But why is the wall orange?" And right. and they, they, it was just like the wall being orange kept showing up as a common theme, you know. So then eventually, it's like go to the owner and be like, "Why don't you just change the color of the wall?" Because is it because everyone's giving you great reviews, but it's definitely throwing people off. Or, or, or change the name to the restaurant uh, Orange the, Wall. That's, good, <laughs> good idea. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah, that's how you use Yelp to your advantage. Yeah, that's funny. But wouldn't it be better if uh, a guest feedback right in that moment? Maybe yeah, because then it's not public, and if it's a little bit too salty, it could be because um, I don't know. But would he be open at the time to that feedback? You know, you're running around, serving people, all that, it, yeah, you know? You say that to the server. And what's, what's interesting about feedback is it's super hard to get good, legitimate, continual feedback. There's a, a ton of ways to try, right? Restaurants have a card you fill out. I actually had a great idea that I was super proud of that didn't work, but it was amazing in the way, because, like, If your friend has an undercooked burger or someone you know through the restaurant industry or whatever, acquaintance or something, they're, they're not going to be too inclined to tell you. That's super hard to do. I mean, I've never done it. I just don't have the gumption to be able to give feedback in a way that I don't feel uncomfortable doing. Because And so it's like, you know, it's the pepper grinder principle, which uh, is a theory I came up with. We can talk about later. Just remind me. Um, the pepper grinder principle, which is that those who have the best ability to give feedback don't feel comfortable doing it, and then vice versa, right? Like those who love giving feedback are want to do it for the wrong reasons. Therefore, mm -hmm. their feedback's, in my opinion, illegitimate often. Um, so my idea, which I thought was great, and other friends who are in similar fields or whatever, uh, they thought it was a good idea. And what I did was I made a, I made an email, a Gmail account um, called How Was My Meal at Beast at Gmail .com, and I had a stamp. And if it was a friend, I wouldn't do it for everybody, but if it was a friend or a food 
writer or, or uh, another, you know, a waiter from another restaurant, anybody I knew through the industry, I would stamp the password and the inter- the email address, um, am I making sense, on mm-hmm. the check. So what they would do, and it would say, and I would say, hey, check it out, we're doing this thing mm-hmm. where we want feed, it's, it, it was all about being anonymous, so they didn't feel like they were being jerks. And so the idea was that they log in uh, with the username and password I provided with the stamp, and then they email me. So the email comes from my own one I set up, how was my meal, and I don't know who it is. Then they can be like, hey, the server was a jerk, uh, the food, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought it was a good idea because you could get feedback from friends and people yeah, you respect. Yeah. And, you're, and you're asking selective people, too. Yeah. Exactly. You get to choose. Yeah. So, but honestly, I, I think only two people ever did it because it's kind of a hassle, I guess. Once I, I did a gave feedback, and this was, um, I was just waiting one hour until the kitchen was closed. And then I talked to the sous chef and we had a conversation half an hour long about that food. And it was amazing. He, he said all the time, oh, I'm so happy that you gave me that feedback, babe, because usually the kitchen don't get feedback. So it's, it's so hard. And, and my brother is sous chef, too, in, in Germany. So I know how to, yeah, so I, I know how to, to, I, to give feedback. But on the other hand, I know how important it is to get feedback. Sometimes I do that, but very rarely. It's very, it's very hard. Oh, yeah. Feedback is a very tricky I, I don't know if it's that hard for me for some reason. <laughs> yeah, you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so I heard that uh, Marcus's brother is a famous chef. That's what I heard. Is that right? What is famous? <laughs> <laughs> that means yes. <laughs> <laughs> is becoming a famous chef. Is uh, yeah, that, I hope that he is, is that becoming the, is a that, famous Yeah, because he has so m- many passion. Uh, in his uh, dishes and what he cooks and is good in um, all that creative stuff the yeah. cold kitchen and, and combine the uh, cold dishes with fancy things and fancy in a positive way uh, yeah so I, I like that German Italian kitchen he loves to cook oh cool yeah that sounds good it, yeah Germany Italy is not far away so we have, have you heard of the restaurant San Francisco Soup and Cooch I think that's how you pronounce in German. I'm sure I'm, it's not how you say it, but it's a, it's a popular, from what I'm told, very uh, traditional German restaurant in Hayes Valley, oh, yeah. and it's been there for like 25 years. But in the last few years, it really took off. They didn't change mm-hmm. the food or anything. From from what I'm told, again, I'm not you know a historian on the restaurant, um, but they didn't change much. It just it got appreciated all of a sudden, and now it's very super popular. It's awesome. Soup and cooch is how you say it. Are you sure? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I mean, maybe, that's maybe, what, that's what maybe, we oh, call so it. So maybe Marcus should Google it so he can say it correctly. Oh, I think it's soup and cooch. Soup and cooch, yeah. Uh, that, that's right. There oh, we go. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, he, that's, uh, he didn't yeah, have to Google that. Name. Okay. No, Got it. For, what does that mean? What does it, yeah, what does it mean? A kitchen that cooks soup. Stew. More stew. For you, it's more stew because, yeah, it's, it's thicker and so... We have another great word for that. That means front eintopf. But this is more, um, yeah, it's historical thing. So it's, right. It's a, it's a massive. One of our early uh, names for the restaurant was going to be Kitchen That Cooks Soup, but it didn't, didn't do so well. <laughs> you told me, or you told us, um, that your restaurant was in the Mission. What makes the Mission special? So the Mission back in the 90s was like a bad neighborhood, and now it signifies 
uh, you know, the gentrification issue in San Francisco, which is, I imagine, you know, people of means moving there in the 90s because other places were too expensive, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then uh, restaurants did the same thing. As a matter of fact, the rest, our restaurant space had a restaurant in it in the 90s that was one of the first sort of like trendy kind of fancy food nerd foodie places to be in a ghetto kind of neighborhood which was at our location which is 22nd and Guerrero uh and that was in the 90s and it was called the flying saucer and it's very famous in the lore of restaurants in San Francisco because at the time I'm pretty sure everybody thought you know what the heck is this guy doing uh, putting a restaurant there. I mean, this is when Dolores Park, which now is like a beautiful park with mm-hmm. all these events and plays and, you know, little kids frolicking. And sun tanners. Sun tanners and tattooed people drinking beer and all the things that happen. And the H word, right? And the H word, exactly. <laughs> um, but in those days, it was, you know, there's like hypodermic needles in the grass and stuff like that. So then it just continued from there and... I mean, I'm sure it's one of the most populated neighborhoods in the country of restaurants. It has to be. I mean, every block has a new great restaurant or an old classic great restaurant. There's so many. And it's kind of a small neighborhood. And, uh, yeah, so I think that played a role for us for sure. And I don't really believe in restaurant competition being an issue unless it's super obvious. Like, you're a sandwich place by a naval base. And then another sandwich place opens near the naval base. Then the Navy guys have two places to choose from. That is an obvious form of competition. But as far as having a restaurant in a restaurant-saturated neighborhood, it we always welcomed the idea of more places coming uh, because then it just makes it more of a destination neighborhood for dining. And that's I think it helps uh, everybody. So that's sort of what the mission is was like when we moved in and we moved out and still now. And, and you had your restaurant for five years? Was we were open for four, for about. Four. And then uh, it took a year to get open somehow. But so it was like a five-year project. And then you sold the restaurant? We sold it, yeah. It wasn't really working for us. And then there was a, a rent hike that was kind of the last straw. Uh, so we actually agreed on what to do, which is wasn't rare for us, but rare for partnerships. I think so. So the rent uh, is a big issue in that area, or in yeah, areas? in San Francisco, uh, residential rent is what's all over the the media. Uh, you know, there's all these horror stories of people getting kicked out when uh, the owner of a building sells it. Everything, you know, a house goes up for sale and uh, they, right. it sells the next day for half again the asking price or whatever. And similar things are happening with restaurants. Just that landlords want more money, especially with a restaurant rather than a residence because you're making money in their space, so they kind of resent that. And, you know, the the restaurant law states that if your landlord stops by to visit you, it's going to be on the busiest night. You know, that's the way the world works. <laughs> so 
when well, you yeah, complain, so they don't hear you. In the in the marina right now, Union Street, there's a whole bunch of empty places because the rent they pretty much doubled people's rents. Uh, like for example, Umame um, has been closed yeah. for a year. Their rent was twenty five thousand a month, and I think now they want forty five thousand for the same space. That sounds insane, but it's totally I, I believe uh, it. BCBG on Union Street, th- their rent was around twenty How something. Can you build up a, a restaurant or a start with a restaurant with such a huge rent. That's a good question. Um, I've thought a lot about that actually, uh, because there's a lot of new there's there's a lot of new models for opening restaurants. I think, especially with the internet and exposure and Kickstarter and those kinds of platforms, there's a lot of ways to cleverly do it. Um, an example would be I have a friend opening a place, uh, and what they're doing is offering small shares for investors, so you can invest five hundred dollars. And the idea is you get like a thousand investors or something and you either get a small return or you can probably get, I mean, another model would be you get a gift certificate. I think a place in the mission did that. So you can be clever about it uh, because of we're living in the future, you know, where every, everybody knows about everything. However, the traditional model, which we had, which was like, let's open a place. We'll write a business plan. Like my lawyer friend will help us and then we'll raise a million dollars is a little bit dated unless you have means You know, like a restaurant group, which essentially is a bunch of people that make a lot of money in restaurants already, which probably isn't the case. But mostly, I would say the majority of the time, it's people that are good, uh, successful in other fields, lawyers, et cetera, developers. But they want to be involved with restaurants, so they throw together a group that has, you know, a lot of resources. By that, I mean money, so they can deal with opening a place with expensive rent and being slow for a year until it catches on. Or, or you try to figure out how you can partner with the owner of the property. So yeah. the owner of the property gives you reduced rent, but they're getting profits from your business because that's kind of what they were looking at, going, wow, those people are making that kind of money. Exactly. I want to raise the rent. So they might want some of that money. Yeah, I feel like the traditional model is kind of not happening anymore. There's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of alternatives that are safer. Um, so since since this is food brews, maybe you want to tell us uh, about your favorite beer, favorite brews. Favorite beer. Ooh. Yeah, I uh, I do like beer. I don't have a good memory of all the beers I've had. Uh, I like... Let me guess. The please. yellow one. Yeah, you like the yellow one. The short Millers. Those are great. I think that the slang term is Miller Nip or Miller Pony. They're seven ounces. Yeah, those are great. <laughs> I like them because you feel responsible drinking it. You know, it's for a child. Uh, honestly, I think my favorite beer of all time is a Belgian beer. I, I think it's a... Oh, I can't remember the name of it. See, this is what happens. I remember it specifically because the guy on the label was like a fat, bald guy drawing and he looked just like my friend's dad it's like i think it's classified as a sour beer but it's very mellow it's a very mellow sour beer uh so the the drawing of the guy on the bottle looked just like our co-founder by that i mean guy helped us open the restaurant but wasn't a partner and i begged him to work every day his whole life which he did and now i owe him uh, my soul basically looked just like his dad, so we all got a kick out of it. But it also was good, and it's around San Francisco. It's at most places. Kind of, uh, it's getting to be well. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. Sorry. Don't be sorry about it. We'll just have to uh, patch, the, uh, splice that in yeah. later. <laughs> How's it? I'm the answer. Uh, usually, the best beer is the beer I have right now. Oh, that's good. 
Because, yeah, it's so so great to have to have like a good beer. Because you wouldn't have a, a good beer in your hand. Because, so yeah. even, this, even though this is episode one, I, I'm thinking we should have a, a beer sponsor for every episode. So maybe our next episode we'll, we'll have a beer sponsor. Pretty yeah. good idea. Of course. Come on. It's a good idea to have a sponsor and a beer. And no, but, a beer I, sponsor. So but, I, but I did hear we might have a beer sponsor for our next one. Yeah. Didn't, yeah. didn't you hear that? Can it be the Seven Hours Millers? Awesome. <laughs> okay, so what place would you recommend to people who are new in the Bay Area? A friend of mine just got a new job in New York, and he had a coworker coming, and he said, can you recommend something cultural, something cool? And all I could think of was, was restaurants. There's a view spot that's amazing that not many people know about so what i would do is i would go to the view spot it's right where the fog breaks uh coming from mm -hmm. the ocean and you can watch the fog roll over the hill and you almost have a 360 degree view a panoramic view of the entire bay area it's called corona heights park so go up there then there happens to be a restaurant that honestly is the best food i've ever eaten in my life It's absolutely mind-blowing. It's just insane. And I've brought friends there, and maybe they're not as enthusiastic as I am, but they like it a lot. And uh, it's called Liho Liho Yacht Club, and it's in the Tenderloin, which is kind of funny. It's one of the few remaining bad neighborhoods. But it's also, you know, it's not dangerous. But it's Hawaiian. I guess I would call it Hawaiian San Francisco food. Good. What is... Hawaiian San Francisco. That's a good question. I mean, they use a lot of pineapple and stuff. They have house-made spam, which is really awesome. So I think it's modern takes on Hawaiian classics. And the guy is from Hawaii. And the story is just really cool. He's like a really cool guy, a really humble guy who helped open a bunch of uh, successful places in the city and finally has his own. And it's just... It's exactly what you want when you eat out. It's super friendly. Uh, it's just the best value. It's, in, it's incredible. They have a fried hen. I think it's a guinea hen. Basically fried chicken, but a little, you know, a hen. And it's the best fried thing I've ever eaten. The problem is that it's too, it's busy. <laughs> so if you go, go early. You know, you're on vacation in San Francisco. Go at, go to dinner at 4.30. Just do it and uh, it'll be worth it. In Tenderloin. In the Tenderloin. And don't mind the, the people uh, wandering around looking like zombies. They're harmless. Our last question. I, I love our last question because it's, yeah, it's a good picture. Just imagine tomorrow will be your last day in the Bay Area. Where would you go to say goodbye? Hmm. How much time do I have? Well, no, I mean, not no that idea. day. Do yeah, I have the, yeah, whole the, whole day? Day. the whole day? Oh, well, I'd go to, I'd go to, uh, I'd get a grab bag. I'd put some M&Ms and Sour Patch Kids and... He looks like he's going to cry already. And, yeah, oh God. And uh, what time period is it? Can I go back in time? <laughs> <laughs> I'd go to ice skating in Berkeley. They shut it down like 20 years ago. Um, I'd go to a double feature at a movie theater, IMAX. Back to back, I would sneak into the second, so I'd have, I'd have a little thrill for the second part of the, my last day. Then I'd go up to Corona Heights Park with uh, Sparkling Rosé, the park I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Sparkling Rosé, by the way, is 
really amazing and becoming more and more popular. Yeah. And this one uh, bartender, that's what that's all he drinks. I love it. It's the best. I actually went to a party, a Christmas party, uh, <laughs> of someone in the wine industry, and all they were serving was vintage sparkling rosé. I mean, can you imagine? They, she had like forty, yeah, like old one, French ones from like the seventies. Oh, okay. but it's meaning really, old, I guess. But it's really, it's really uh, taking off in that uh, hipster subculture. Oh, right? definitely. Like, the stigma's gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> The stigma's gone. I want a dry white is now being replaced with give me your sweetest white now. Anyway, so I would get a sparkling rosé, go to Corona Heights Park, watch the fog roll over. It's the perfect little spot between the sun and the fog, which I, I like a lot. And uh, that's where I would say goodbye because I could see my dad's house where I grew up, my mom's house in Oakland where I grew up. I could see everything. And, uh, you know, I'd welcome the apocalyptic missile or whatever is coming uh, with a, with a uh, sparkling rosé. Vintage, if I could find one. It would definitely be a sparkling rosé if the nuclear weapon came. Yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> that's a good picture. I love that. Yeah, then thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dylan. It's um, been a pleasure. You're one of the best guests we've ever had. How often do you say that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm the first guest. Got it. <laughs> so I'm the best and the worst. I've been yeah. both. <laughs> That's right. We had that in the introduction of our first episode. So, yeah, thank you very much. I hope you liked it too. And if you have any comments or feedback, just visit our website, foodbrews.com, or our Facebook page, Twitter, and whatever you want. So Yelp. thank you. <laughs> and, also, also, and also, if you're in the Bay Area, we host different events that we can invite you to if you subscribe to our channel. Good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. It was a great show.